You guys, uh, actually, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 2. I love these first couple of chapters of the Bible. Uh, when everything that, that we see and know uh, around us in this world is, is being created, um, I love thinking about the first everything. You know, the first star, the first mountain, the first river, the first beach, animals of every kind, perfect, uh, undefiled, unpolluted, <laughs> majestic. I imagine God having a blast creating all of this stuff that he knows is going to be for our enjoyment and just how much joy that must have brought him to do that. But God was just getting started. I want to look at at Genesis 2. So after he creates, you know, everything that we see in the physical world around us, Genesis 2 verse 7 says this, and the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So can you imagine waking up every morning in just kind of this lush beautiful surrounding that was created for you and your enjoyment and and everything that you needed was right there. And then to top it all off, God creates a suitable partner for Adam. He gives him his wife, Eve. And chapter two leaves off with this amazing statement. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What, What a powerful and profound truth that is. Not only did they not feel any shame over their own bodies, okay, which is great, but something much deeper was also true. They felt no shame relationally. No shame over any word they had ever spoken, any thought they had ever had, any emotion that they had ever experienced, because sin didn't exist. Everything was perfect. There was no need to hide anything, no need to make up lies or stories to cover anything over. No need to wear a mask to make yourself look better. And it's hard for us to imagine that perfect place of rest and just perfect peace in relationships. But then we all know how the next chapter goes. The serpent comes and convinces Adam and Eve to um, do the one thing God told them not to do, to eat fruit from that particular tree in the garden, and calamity soon followed. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. It says, then after they ate the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. This was uncharted waters for Adam, right? I mean, he didn't know how God was going to respond to him once he had failed. This had never happened before. Disobedience. 
And so in guilt and shame, it says that Adam and Eve covered themselves. And for the first time ever, they hid from God. Because they assumed that God's love for them was going to be conditional. And a stone was thrown out into the pool of humanity, just kind of making concentric circles all the way out to you and I. Because we know what that's like. When we fail, we blow it. We hold our breath too. How is God going to respond to us? Surely he's disappointed. Maybe even disgusted. So many of us hide. We've been used to performing. Right? Do well in school, sports, your career, and get rewarded. Do poorly, blow it, and we feel ashamed, numb, indifferent, less loved. Adam, he was kind of assuming that God was kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus. Right? How does the Christmas song go? He's making his list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? Sounds like a criminal investigation. Like when you start thinking about it, it's like, dang, Santa, step off, man. And what question does Santa ask our kids at Christmas? Tell me. Have you been good? Man, that is a loaded question, isn't it? Every, every kid knows it's a trick. They know it because in their mind, they have a pretty recent memory of that time they were just spanked, heaven forbid, or sent to time out, or, or you know, grounded, however old they might be. I mean, they know, right? I mean, in, in the literalness of the question, have, I, have you been good this year? And the kid's thinking, like, the whole year? Well, you know, I mean, had some moments, right? But as kids, you've got it figured out, right? Because the most important thing is that gift that you want. And so you're willing to say anything at that point, right? So most kids are like, absolutely. I have been an angel this year, as a matter of fact, right? What kid is going to say, have I been good this year? No, man, not really. I mean, it's been kind of a train wreck. I mean, ask me, mom and dad are standing right over there. They'll probably tell you. I mean, I've been a turd a lot of the year, right? No kid ever says that. We learn early on to wear that mask, don't we? Justify, rationalize, always try to put our best foot forward, right? At all costs, hide the real me. When I was in third grade, I lived in an apartment complex in North Kansas City. And there used to be this church, First Baptist Church, um, that used to bring a bus to our apartment complex and pick kids up to go to church. And this was a big apartment complex. So um, I still remember them knocking on my door on Sunday morning, right? I'm nine, asking me to to go to church. And um, those Baptists were relentless. Can I tell you? Um, I must have been pretty bored. There really, back then, there wasn't a whole lot on TV on Sunday morning, okay? So I went, and I got on that bus by myself and went to church. And um, I didn't know anything about God, like not one Bible story, zero. 
And so I would go to church and I remember being in Sunday school and, you know, this teacher like kind of having these Bible trivia things, you know, I'm super competitive, right? And so I'm like, I want to win, but I don't know any of the answers, right? So my hand's going up, you know, Jesus, I mean, maybe that was right 10, 15% of the time and I got a few nuggets thrown at me, but it was pretty much a train wreck for me. But um, I certainly remember as a nine-year-old that I wanted to be seen as good, right? I wanted to fit in in that place. I knew I had to hide some of my habits. Like even as a nine-year-old, I had a pretty good cussing vocabulary at that point. And I knew I couldn't do that at church or else they were going to kick me out and send me home. So whatever church clothes I could find at the time, I I scrounged up and, and put on. And I knew for sure I was putting my good kid mask on. And for the most part, I think it worked. I don't know. Maybe I didn't fool them as much as I thought I did. But I, I kind of figured out I could kind of be my normal, ornery, kind of foul mouth self like Monday through Saturday and then just kind of clean my act up a little bit for an hour or two on Sunday morning and kind of get by, right? The church phase didn't last very long for me because we moved to a new town the next year. There was no bus that came by my house and, and knocked on the door, so... But I was starting to get the hang of this wearing a mask thing. And I primarily hid behind athletics. I desperately tried to achieve enough in sports as I went to uh, several new schools that the kids there would just kind of accept me because I could help them, you know, win at kickball or whatever was going on in the playground that day. If I was a good enough athlete, then maybe they wouldn't ask me very many questions about my home life. Or maybe they wouldn't be concerned that I was a little bit rough around the edges at times. So fast forward uh, a few years later to high school, and I'm confronted with the gospel, the story of Jesus, really, for the first time. And what he had done for me. And people told me that God loved me just as I was. Warts and all. And man, that was freeing. And I still remember one of the first verses that was shared with me, one of the first verses that I memorized is in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Most of you know it, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. My salvation was by grace. It wasn't based on my effort at all. It was unconditional. God pursued me. God found me. He he offered his hand to kind of pull me out of whatever pits I had dug for myself and messes I'd got myself into, and he embraced me as a son. And man, I just ate that news up. (laughs) It was like a flood of life-giving water over a parched soul, and my, my heart just soaked it in. That was great news. And I wish I could tell you that I stayed in that mindset of grace forever. But it honestly didn't last that long. It seemed like I was kind of getting mixed messages. On the one hand, people were telling me, hey, you're saved by grace. But on the other hand, they were telling me all these things that I had to do now. Go to church. Read your Bible. Pray. Stop cussing. Stop making out with girls. In other words, 
perform. At least that's how it felt at the time. It was very confusing. <laughs> I thought I'd just been freed from performing. And now it seems like I'm being told I need to perform, and it's just kind of under a different name or different guise. For God to be happy with me, I had to do certain things. I had to not do other things. <laughs> and in general, I had to kind of clean my life up. That's what I heard. In college, it morphed into, you know, accountability partners and scripture memory and and going to churches where at that time I tended to kind of hear these sermons that were like kind of the, you know, three steps to, you know, your best life now. Um, all good things if your motives are right in the way in which you're going about them. But that's where a lot of people get confused. And here's the truth of the matter, guys. I was pretty good at the game. Right? I, I'm an achiever. In any, any Enneagram threes out there? Nobody, couple, nobody, seriously, nobody is an Enneagram. Three. How many people have taken the Enneagram or know what that is? And not one of y'all is a three? Couple, oh, there you go. All right, now we've got some confessors. Oh, beautiful. Nice. Okay, good. Okay, the Enneagram three is the achiever, all right? If you haven't taken it, go take it, Google it, whatever, figure it out. Anyways, um, so it's basically like kind of nine personality types that we all have. It's an ancient like Christian tool to kind of help you understand yourself better. But anyways, as an achiever, right, I'm a person that wants goals, right? Give me a goal, something to, to strive for, and, and I'm good. I'm, I'm a naturally disciplined person. I love routine. And so even in college, so I became a Christian at the end of high school. I go to college, and I like would schedule my first class at nine so that every day I could get up at 7.30 and I could spend time with God, right? I'd read my Bible. I'd, I'd write in my prayer journal. I was leading, you know, my college ministry there um, during that, that time in college. And um, I'd even almost completely stop cussing. Um, almost. Uh, don't go golfing with me at that time. Um, I'd sworn off dating. So I just figured, you know what, if I can't handle, you know, dating, then I'm just not going to date anybody until I can find a person I think I might marry. Um, and this program seemed to be working fairly well for me for quite a while. But you know what the disciplines and the f performing could, couldn't do or didn't do? It didn't help me love people anymore. It didn't help me love people. And that became obvious when I got married and started having children. I could have quiet times, do all the Christian things like nobody's business. But man, my selfishness and my sarcasm and my criticalness was just constantly wounding the people around me. Something was missing in my understanding of the gospel. Something was missing in the sermons I was hearing and the, and the church cultures that I was a part of at the time. Up to that point, what I was hearing because again, maybe I missed it. What I was hearing was that this Christian life was just kind of this constant striving. And, and you were just kind of on this Christian treadmill, just, just trying to do the right things, right? And I'm a runner, so man, I can go on that treadmill all day long, right? And I, I could knock out and practice those right behaviors. But looking back, I had a very limited understanding of the concept of grace, 
I just didn't get it. Which brings us back to this place that I mentioned last week. We talked about the two paths, right? In the book that uh, we're going to be talking from a little bit called The Cure, the author talks about that, you know, once you begin this relationship with Christ, we kind of come to this fork in the road in terms of how we're going to live our faith out. One path is, leads in the direction called pleasing God, the other in the direction called trusting God. Okay? So once we, we come to this, this fork in the road, we, we have to make a choice. And the, the author of the book kind of describes the choice like this. So he's talking about the character in the book that kind of comes to this fork in the road. And he says, I look up at the trusting God sign. This has to be a trap, a trick question. It sounds good, but it doesn't give me anything to do. It's too passive. How will I make a difference? If God and I are going to be in sync, there's got to be something more than trust. If the issue is me, I'm probably not going to figure out my destiny simply by trusting that God can be trusted. I move over to the pleasing God sign, pointing down the path to the left. This has to be it. After all he's done for me, the very least I can do is please him. And the interesting thing about a fork in the road is this, is that you only have one option. You can't straddle both paths. You got to pick one. And the author, John Lynch, he says this about our choice. He says, whichever path you decide will be the primary motivation of your heart for the rest of the journey. Okay, whatever path you decide, it's going to influence the perspective on everything that you see about what it means to be a Christian and how you live that out. So in, in the book, the, the character gets to this fork in the road, and initially he decides that, that the path to, to pleasing God seems to make the most sense to him. So he kind of heads off into this path in the woods, and he says he travels for, for quite a while, and he finally pops up into this clearing where there's this big, ornate building. And the sign above the door reads, Striving hard to be all God wants me to be. And it sounds a lot like what we hear in our American culture all the time, right? These old commercials are stuck in my head, right? The army, you know, be all you can be, right? Nike, just do it, right? And for an achiever like me, that mentality is like seemingly like a dream come true, right? Like, yeah, let's take the next hill. We can do it, right? And it says, as the author, is, as this character steps inside the building, he walks into this large meeting room. He says, it's called the Room of Good Intentions. With a banner across the back that reads, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. Now, even though we might be able to look at that statement and see the flaws in its way of thinking, why is that mantra so appealing to a lot of us? Yeah, Nicole? Because we're in control. Yeah, that's great. That's one potential answer, a really good one. Anything else? Why is that appealing? 
Oh, way in the back. Yes, sir. Do what now? Okay, yeah, you've got control of the wheel. You're trying harder. Good. What else? Do you, do you have to trust him to know how to please him? Okay. So, yeah. What does it take out of the equation? Yeah, Matt. Okay. Yeah. So um, he talks about just like that the separation between our actions maybe and, and what's going on on the inside or that we can kind of live a duplicitous life. Um, is that even a word? I think I just made it up. Um, I think what it takes out of the equation, guys, is mystery. It, it boils things down to, to control and it takes the mystery of a relationship with God and what that means and what that looks like, kind of this dance with the eternal, <laughs> unbelievable God, mysterious God, and what that looks like, and it tries to grip it down and narrow it down to just what I can control, my behaviors, because we like that. <laughs> the perspective presented in this room is one where each of us, this is really important, we're going to come back to this illustration, okay? The perspective presented in that room of good intention is this, that, that each one of us is here, our pile of sin is here, and then God is somewhere over here. And so then our role becomes in our Christian life is how do I clean up and kind of wipe some of this sin away so that I can have a more clear and direct path, more manageable path towards God? Okay? You want to know something crazy? When I was a young Christian, I honestly thought that this pile of my sin was, was kind of a limited amount. And that if I just really got after it in my Christian life, that over time, I mean, it might not all go away, but I mean, who are we fooling here? Like, it was going to get lower and lower, and, and eventually Bob was going to be able just to cruise on over to God, right? There's going to be a whole lot between me and him, honestly. Because one thing is that I looked at the people that were further down the road in their faith, and it looked like they had it together, like their pile had gone quite a bit down, and they kind of presented themselves like that. They didn't really share a whole lot of their struggles, weren't very vulnerable. So I was thinking, wow, well, all right, man, if I just do enough good stuff, memorize enough verses, become holy enough, well, obviously, I'll be closer to God. It'll be easier, Well, this is what people didn't tell me. What people didn't tell me then was that just around the corner, kind of where I couldn't quite see it, are dump trucks of my junk. And one of them's got, you know, five years later, Bob, 20 years later, Bob, 30 years later, Bob, and they're lined up down this road, filled with my sin, just ready to come and just dump it on the pile. 
and keep bringing it, right? Keep bringing it in, boys. No matter how hard I'm running on that treadmill, my junk is just piling up forever. I was never going to get to the bottom of it. Nobody told me that. Case in point, I've been a Christian for 34 years, been married for 27 years. I love my wife, Kristen. She's awesome, right? I don't go into any day or any moment or any interaction like purposely wanting to hurt her, right? That would be crazy. A few weeks ago, we're having breakfast on a Saturday morning. I'm sitting at the counter. We're just talking. And uh, I mean, the most just cutting, critical, stupid comment comes flying out of my mouth towards her. You ever had those moments where you're like, what did I just say? And you know, you're just like, ah, and it was obvious that she was hurt by what I said. And I immediately thought of like Paul, you know, the sin I don't want to do, I do, (laughs) right? And it was just such a great reminder to me that, man, my sin is never that far underneath the surface. Just the right whatever, I don't even have to think about it, stuff just comes out, feels like at least. The path of pleasing God seems to be about how I can keep God pleased with me. I want to say that again. The path of pleasing God seems to be about how can I keep God pleased with me. And when we embrace that theology or that way of looking at the Christian life, the author says that we embrace And we reduce godliness to this ridiculous formula. Here's the formula. You ready? (laughs) The formula is this. More right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness. More right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness. And in so doing, we ignore the righteousness that's already in us through Christ. Remember last week, we talked about 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we're already righteous because of Christ. We don't have to strive through our good behavior to try to earn something that's already been given to us. The author made a really provocative statement about sin, and I want to talk about this with you. He said this, we can never resolve our sin by working on it. When we strive to sin less, we don't. What do you think about that? Do you agree? Yeah, Brittany. <laughs> yeah. Mm. She said striving to sin less is kind of a sin because it's the pride to think that you can sin less. <laughs> right? And there's just no way that we can achieve that. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So he's talking about like the old the hole in the boat, right? You get one plugged up and another one comes through, right? Why is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Mm, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Mm. Yeah, she says, if you're only trying to just sin less, you're not really focusing on a relationship with God. Okay, man, that's good stuff. This was, this was challenging when I first read this, not because I didn't believe it, but I had to think of the implications of it. Like, like why? <laughs> so, so much of the time when you get into, you know, small groups and Bible studies or you have, you know, a partner, accountability partner that you've shared some, something with, and you tell them, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z, most of the time their answer back to you is about striving harder to not do it. Like that is the narrative that most Christians live under, is this idea that, well, you just got to try harder. <laughs> you know, don't be alone at night with a computer or don't, you know, ha get, don't have any credit cards so you won't spend stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, those, I guess you can, those are tips, right? But it's just going to pop up somewhere else because it's a hard issue. It's not a behavior issue. Behaviors are just the outward sign of what's going on in you. You're, you're discontent with life. And so that you're, you're trying to get some, something else to plug that hole up that isn't God. And when we can't sin less by striving harder, where does that lead us? Emotionally, spiritually. Most Christians that I know, they lose hope. <laughs> they give up. That they, they are filled with guilt and shame because Christianity just becomes another thing that they're not good enough at. And from there, it can go a lot of different ways. People can kind of leave their faith behind. They can leave church. Or if they stay in church, what they end up doing is they kind of join that silent army of people that are just fine. They just put the mask on. And they come to church, but they don't really share anything with people. They're fine because they're too ashamed to admit their brokenness, their longing. Fine because they're too filled with shame and guilt to care for anyone else's needs. And they hope you'll say, you're doing fine too, so we can just all keep playing the game. Because it seems less painless, painful that way. But Adam and Eve weren't prepared for God's response. And neither are we. You see, while they're off hiding in the bushes, right, filled with guilt and shame because of their mistakes, God moves towards them. And if you read the next verse in Genesis 3, verse 9, it says that God shows up and he, he comes to walk with them just like he does and meet with them every day. And he says, where are you? Where are you? You are bigger than your failure. You are loved unconditionally in your worst moment. 
And we get a further glimpse into the grace-filled heart of God in Luke chapter 15, right? The story of the prodigal son. Most of you guys know the story. The son goes to his father who's not dead yet and says, I want my inheritance now. He takes it all, goes off, and lives a crazy wild life, right? Doing everything that you can imagine until he gets to a point where he's bottomed out. He's out of money. It's not fun anymore. He's sitting there. Um, you know, looking at the pig slop, thinking I, I ate better, you know, they're eating better than I'm eating now, these pigs. I want to go back home to my father. And still he starts thinking through, like, the apology. Okay, man, he's going to be mad. What do I need to say? You know, so he starts walking towards home, kind of with his tail tucked between his legs. And scripture says that when the son was still a long way off, the father sees him. And he runs towards him. And he embraces him. And he kisses him. And he throws him a party. Before the son had apologized. Before the son had had time to do anything to make things right. God was just happy that he was coming home. So listen, folks. (laughs) Whether we find ourselves filled with shame and we're hiding like Adam and Eve or filled with shame and we're preparing our apology speech like the prodigal son, God's grace-filled heart initiates restored intimacy with us. Come as you are. No mass necessary. No good intentions of getting all the crap in your life kind of cleaned up good enough for God to accept you back. So maybe it's time we go back to that fork in the road and we consider a different path. We're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. God, I'm not sure how the narrative that many of us kind of heard or grown up in or maybe believed along the way got started. <laughs> this whole idea of trying to be good enough, trying to, be, to do the right things and that that was going to lead to godliness instead of believing that our godliness has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ, that our godliness is a gift to us that we didn't have to earn through our right behavior. It's granted to us. And God, man, we've got to get out of that place of thinking that we have control over this or that you're disappointed in us and so we've got to strive and try harder. Help us to be better friends than that, to not give that advice out to people, but that they could rest in this relationship with you that's unconditional. Help us just to come clean, God. If we've, if we've lived like that, that's driving, which on the one hand, it can kind of lead to um, a loss of hope and kind of be depressing. On the other hand, it can lead to spiritual pride and this fake righteousness that we're better than other people because we feel like we're living the Christian life out better than others. And what it does is that puts us in a place of judgment. It, it makes us then weigh, weigh other people down with expectations and things they have to do so they can be as great as we are that's probably more damaging. (laughs) So God, help us wherever we're at on the spectrum of this conversation, break down those lies. Help us just to believe the truth about who we are, about what your heart is towards us, God, that you're the Father running out to greet us. 
as soon as our heart turns back to you, God, you're there with open arms, inviting us into relationship, trying to remind us that we're a son, that we're a daughter, and that's never going to change, no matter what we do. God, we love you for that heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.